Thanks for listening to this OCRFM podcast. Head to ocrfm.org.au to find more great content and information about how to donate and support this community radio station. Good morning and welcome to Community Connect with Edwina and Greg McHenry here on OCRFM 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast. We're also streaming live at all the W's ocrfm.org.au. I'd like to acknowledge the Wadawurrung people who are the traditional owners of the land we're actually recording on today and pay my respects to their elders both past and present. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, everyone. And we've got a few people involved in this keeping our physical distancing that we're hopefully all complying with chatting uh, today about various things. But we've predominantly we've got Daniel Whithouse on the phone with us, who's the CEO of Australia's newest charity, the National Institute for Challenging Homophobia Education, Niche, and uh, so much more. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm well, and it's great to be here. Good on you, mate. Now, look, I've got a, a surprise guest has popped in, and she's sitting way across the other side of the room with our technology here, keeping our physical distancing, and I think you know her. It's Sarah White or Sarah Marie or... Whatever you'd like to call the, me, I guess. Lo- the lovely lady who does the broadcasting <laughs> on uh, OCRFM as well with uh, Paddock the Pride. You know her, don't you? I certainly do. I was lucky enough to meet Sarah when I was doing some work down um, Colac Way. Yeah, and you've been doing a lot of work around. And we, I think I should have looked it up as to when we first came across you, but it was way, way back when you were part of GASP when it was known as uh, the complete thing, Geelong Adult Sexuality Project, I think it was. Adolescent. Adolescent. I can certainly tell you when that was, Greg. That was in 2010, that was in February, and you were lucky enough to take a chance on me coming in to tell you about the big drive that I was doing around country Australia back then. That's right, but that's, that was something to do with Beyond Priscilla, is it, or Beyond That's So Gay, or Beyond Whatever? I can't remember. I'm an old fart, you know that. <laughs> So I was I was doing two things. One, I was launching my first book, uh, Beyond That So Gay, and that was about challenging homophobia in Australian schools. And a lot of that work had happened in Geelong and started in Geelong because, um, as you you know, I'm born and bred there, and I'm very proud of the work I was able to do as part of GASP and in and around the traps and the schools there. Um, but also, I was setting off on a a 266-day drive around regional, rural and remote Australia to challenge homophobia one cup at a time. And it was really important to me that I started that national tour in uh, Geelong to really honour the work that had happened there, but also to see the progress that had been made. You'd been involved with 18 years prior to that. When was it 1992 that GASP started, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was in the mid-1990s that GASP started and the, the first day that I walked in, I remember it was early December in 1996, I was a volunteer and I, I walked up to the counter and I said, I'd, I'd like to volunteer for your gay and lesbian youth project. And they kind of looked at each other and they said, sure, come along. It happens on, then it was Thursday afternoon, so it was kind of like a drop-in session. And I remember that six months later, I was still volunteering and one of the two women on the counter is actually Lee Bartlett, who's been involved in so much down Geelong Way. Lee actually said to me six months later, she said, I thought you were just coming here to find yourself a boyfriend, but actually you were serious when you said you wanted to come and volunteer. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Lee Bartlett is still, um, well, she's near Batforce, basically, here in Geelong, where we, uh, we're broadcasting from, is still doing all her good work in that regard too. 
And I'm so glad about that because I, I do know that Lee was a great support to me when she was working for the City of Greater Geelong Youth Services in those early days. Um, but also it's really interesting, um, Bat Force with Mike Barrow, who used to be the person who headed that up um, in the 1990s, were incredibly supportive of GASP and the work that I was doing. And, and really, if you want to paint a picture of, of the work that happened down that way over the years, it's due to support by people like Lee and Mike Barrow and Batforce and all these other kind of um, institutions and organisations. It's really been a story about how a lot of people have made uh, made Geelong a different place. We were lucky enough, and uh, Sarah is one of the ones who's learning from people such as yourself, we were lucky enough to meet Malloy when we also saw you at the, the Pride March and the event at Johnson Park. Do you see yourself as a well, not a crusader, but a, a groundbreaker in making things easier for the likes of Sarah and and what Malloy did. I think you know her too, don't you? You've broken the barriers down over the years, and how you know how things have evolved for more acceptance, or is there still a lack of acceptance as far as you're concerned, Daniel? Look, I I, I could talk about um, how far we've got to go, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to do that. But really, I want to probably tell the tale of of where we came from when I walked into that the old post office on Ryrie Street in late 1996 Geelong didn't have any visible signs of LGBTIQ life um, gasp was really on its own and I only knew about Geelong having that group that youth group uh, because of some uh, advertisements in a Melbourne based gay and lesbian newspaper uh, it's po- important to say that back then it was gay and lesbian it was pretty much gl the, the the b was sometimes there but certainly the tiq the a plus was not there so certainly we're at the beginning of the lgbtiq journey in many many ways um it also wasn't a safe place to be so one of the reasons why gasp was set up by the um it was a peer support project that the victorian aids council had facilitated knowing that they needed to do something in regional and rural victoria and for me geelong was so lucky that they were selected as one of the sites for that and one of the things that the the young gay and bisexual men spoke about at the time was a, a lack of a place to gather a lack of safe spaces and and certainly the city of greater geelong really really stepped up in that regard to create that safe space in gasp i remember being incredibly concerned about what would happen back then if if people found out that i was gay and there weren't mentions in the newspaper um, I think I mentioned in Johnson's Park when I was there earlier for the, the Geelong Rainbow Festival that the only thing I'd ever heard that was in the newspaper was the um, the murder of a, a gay man in Johnson's Park. And so that was just really telling. And if, I, if, if we shoot to what's happened now, we've got so many stories, so many LGBTIQ positive stories that are in the Geelong Advertiser and, you know, the other the other. Um, bits and bobs and you know like your your program itself and really we could not have dreamt um, back in the mid to late 1990s that Geelong could have so many examples of positive LGBTIQ events 
of groups of you know openly LGBTIQ people to have services who um, actively reach out to the LGBTIQ communities. I just think there are there are so many stories, and it's not to say that we don't. Um, I'm a person who always wants to keep getting better and improving, but um, you know if you look at Geelong back then. Uh, from an LGBTIQ perspective compared to now, it's like night and day. And you'd find the same thing there with Sarah. She's doing a lot of her work by broadcasting through Colac, Daniel, that we're getting a similar response now in Colac. Do you think, Sarah, as well? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting because going to a lot of events and everything, I don't see many people my age, to be honest, but I'm, I know that they're there. So, like, through the other things that I do in my life, I see them and they kind of, they're coming out of the woodwork a little bit more now, I think. But, yeah, sometimes they still have that, um, I guess, don't fully want to go to events and that sort of thing because they're not fully, like, I don't know, comfortable, especially, like, with transgender as well because I know some people that grew up in country Victoria and they're still... It, they've been I've known them as a different name for like 10 years but they're still not actually going through and telling their family and everything so that's the young ones Sarah. yeah mm. oh well I guess I'm still young so you are you young are. but do, do you mean ones younger than you um no because I'm finding it's actually quite interesting I would say that the ones younger than me are a little bit more open with their mm. sexuality actually so the ones that are um say 20, 18, 19, I saw a lot of them at like the fair day and that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So is that part of the work that we've still got to go where the there is still that uh, stigma, Daniel and Sarah, I guess? Yeah, but we have, as Daniel's explained, we have come so far. Like, Well, I've seen that, but, but where, where's the next step? With you going around Australia with your trip, Daniel, that was, well, how, how did that go with you as far as you're concerned? So, so, so firstly, I'll talk about, um, you know, something that, that, that Sarah's really picked up on that's important to talk about. And um, one of the things that I found when I was driving around the country to every nook and cranny and collecting everyday LGBTIQ voices from regional, rural and remote Australia, and, and something I still find to this day, so this, is, this has not changed, is that in country areas, um, country places, country towns, people talk about there's there's this rural spotlight. And what they say is if you're if you're trying to learn about who you are, come out, identify, think about who you are and who you want to be in your community, that that rural spotlight burns brightly. And some people say it's too bright. So they say, if I'm unsure, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure about who supports me. I'm not sure about myself. I'm not sure about the terminology. I'm not sure about how I can get the, the services or the supports that I need. People are reluctant to do that. Now, the old story used to be that people would say, well, I've just got to go to the big smoke. And we know that certainly people still do. Um, but now there are other options. And, and what, what I find more and more are people saying, I want to stay in my own community. I don't want to go to the big smoke for services and supports. I don't want to feel like I have to move away from the place where I grew up in order to be myself. So really, to put it into context, so working with the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality, Ro Allen, my charity niche has been able to work with 29 rural and regional communities in Victoria. 
Now, when they asked them what are the, the biggest um, three issues for them, the number one across Victoria in the last few years has been safety. So people saying that we either don't feel safe ourselves or we get concerned that I might be safe, but it's not necessarily a safe space for other LGBTIQ people. And as Sarah's outlined, um, there are certainly, if we look at the anecdotal evidence, but also the research evidence itself, we know that people across the LGBTIQ community experience safety and support differently. So we know that, for example, trans and gender diverse people, um, we know that bi and pan people um, are not going to have the same experience as gay and lesbian people, for example. Um, so it's important for us to kind of to break that down. But as I said, the top three issues that people come up with in Victoria, um, first, number one, out and out is safety, not necessarily feeling safe in their communities. The second one is visibility. So either visibility of openly LGBTIQ people or even just LGBTIQ friendly rainbow flags, transgender flags, bio flags, um, things on websites, services and groups available for them. Is certainly that visibility and related to that, the third biggest issue is people say that they can't get the supports that they need in their own community and that they have to leave that. So Sarah's right that safety um, and visibility are huge issues for LGBTIQ people and we know that we can make a difference with that, but that's the work that I spoke about in terms of the work that we still have to go. With the, well, I'm going to call it rainbow, the LGBTIQ alphabet, the rainbow aspect of it, we don't really need as part of community or as a whole of community to be bothered about all the diversity within that group, do we? It's a matter of us accepting that the, the differences are there, that the, you know, we just need to accept differences and be inclusive of everyone, irrespective of what their sexuality is and or their gender. It's a, a, a cultural thing we need to just be more, well, accepting, don't we? Well, I have these conversations in two ways. One is with LGBTIQ community members in lots of different parts of Australia, particularly Victoria and Tasmania, but also with mainstream services. And, and often what I, I have is there's this, bit, there's this kind of thing I call in the meantime. So Greg, you and I, Sarah and, you know, and Edwina, we would, we would say we believe that things should be a particular way. So we would like it to be kind of like a utopia or an ideal where people just do treat people as human beings and that's in all of their diversity. But the problem is, is that we don't live in that world yet. We certainly should be there. I, I, I would love us to be there, but we're not. And so what do we do in the meantime now? In terms of people in the LGBTIQ communities, I, I talk to a lot of people um, and I hear a lot of their stories. And what they say is, is that there is sometimes a lack of understanding, a lack of patience a lack of um, a willingness to listen to people who are different to themselves. And, and certainly we know that, for example, trans and gender diverse people would say that they've had a history of not feeling as accepted and safe and okay and supported within LGBTIQ wider spaces. Certainly bi and pan people have said that. Certainly if you look at culturally and linguistically diverse or First Nations people, they'll say that. Um, people living with disabilities have told me, like I've, I've collected their stories as well. So there's, there's lots of these stories where people will say, we need to be really mindful of how we include people. And, and I'm kind of like, I would love for it to be something we naturally do. But, but what, I, what I 
that's how mainstream services, and I think it applies to LGBTIQ spaces as well, is that you know it takes some effort. If we make assumptions that it's going to be okay and that naturally everyone will accept and, and be okay, then it's less likely to happen than if we actually actively reach out and actually try and talk to and listen to what it is that those people need in order to have a safe space. And the good news is that that's minimal investment. Those conversations don't have to be you know, overly laborious, but it is important that we ask those people what they need to feel safe in LGBTIQ spaces. And I'm happy to say that Victoria is doing an extraordinary job at that um, and has been doing that in recent years, but still has work to go. We might have a little break in there, Daniel, and I'll put on one of your tracks called Rainbow Connection. Now, I say one of them because you requested that track. Well, I've picked up on a a couple of versions of it, and one of them is by Kermit the Frog, and I think that's probably the one that you wanted, is it? Certainly, only because people have a strong emotional reaction, either good or bad, to it. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll put that one on second, because I've picked up another one, and it's by the, the, world, or the well-known and famous Willie Nelson. So that's what I understand you haven't heard, so we'll be playing that. Um, Are you saying Kermit's not famous? Oh, well, yeah, wait a moment, yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's all come on. Do, do you want to hear an interesting fact? Yeah. That was actually on the short list for one of the songs that we could use for their intro for From Paddocks to Pride, and it was one of their suggest, suggested names as well, Rainbow Connection. Okay, but who's, who's version? Kermit's or? Kermit's. Kermit's. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear, oh, dear. All right, we're going to be playing the, we'll play the Willie Nelson version first and we'll get the Kermit one second, okay, but we'll, that'll be in our next break. Look, your own community connect, we've got Sarah Marie, Sarah White, what do we call you, Sarah? Just Sarah. Yeah, just Sarah. Just Sarah, who's paddocks to pride on OCRFM 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast. You're on on when? Sundays. Yeah, Sunday. Sunday at 6pm you'll hear this episode as well. Okay, which is fabulous. And Edwina McHenry's here too with Greg and we're talking with Daniel Whithouse. You'll have to let us know a little bit more about Niche as well as any other things. And I know that Sarah's been putting a few questions together for you, so she might take over after this song. So we'll be back with you shortly. That was Willie Nelson and Rainbow Connection and we will be playing in the next break. We'll be putting on that Kermit one just for for Sarah, who was in the studio here with a big smile on her face. And oh, I wouldn't call your house a studio. But... Oh, well, no, sorry, it's the studio. Well, wait a moment. It's just the sort of vernacular we use when we're broadcasting, isn't it? Okay, <laughs> in our house. Well, we won't go through where we might have broadcast previously, will we, Edwina? No. Because it's... Edwina, of course, is in here in the, the house as well, and we're sitting around our round table keeping our physical distancing in this world of COVID-19. Well, I heard some people do it under the doona. Well, yeah, I've heard that too. I was in the closet. I went back into the closet to do my recordings. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about in the closet, I know. We're still talking with Daniel Whithouse, who's well out of the closet. How are you, Daniel? That's a great track, isn't it? But you're still you're still looking forward to Kermit, aren't you? Uh, always, always looking forward to Kermit for many and varied reasons. But yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm well and truly out of the closet. And, and interestingly, I actually came out um, to the Geelong community, came out of the closet. There were rumours swirling after I left um, high school um, because back in the day, everyone in Geelong was one step removed. So everyone 
knew everyone. It was still kind of small enough and provincial enough, I think. And in 1998, the Geelong Advertiser actually wanted to do a story on me for Volunteer Week. And in that article, I came out as gay and working for GASP at the time as a volunteer. And certainly that was very, very, very big news on page, I, I believe it was page three wow. of, the, um, of the Geelong Advertiser. And that definitely caused an earthquake across the, uh, the heterosexual cisgender landscape of Geelong back in the day. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, jeez. That's, well, that's you wonderful. really are a ground broker. Now, I don't think I mentioned that we we're on 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast here, did I? So I better remember remind people of that. Also, that we will be doing a podcast on this, Daniel, so I hope you don't mind sending a photo through. Well, I just pick one up of you with clothes on from the internet. <laughs> well, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of pictures of me on the internet, and I, I think that the hardest thing to do is find a current picture of me, whether or not I've got a beard and a man bun or whether I've got um, just a, a number one buzz cut all over. Or, or your PJs. But anyway, we won't go there because you can talk a little bit about that. But one of the main reasons we're doing this chat with you is because it is Idaho. Well, wait a moment. It's changed now because it was Idaho when we were chatting back, well, back in the 2010. And prior to that, when we were talking, I'm trying to think of the name of some of the people. We've had Suzanne Prosser and before Suzanne we had... Oh, I've done an interview with all them. All those. We've all these people. Oh, and good. it was Idaho way back at once upon a time, Daniel, yeah, and probably but... before you got involved, Sarah. Yeah, so I've always known as Ida Hobbit. You, do you know what it stands for? <laughs> yes, it's International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. But also in Australia, we'd include intersex as well, I'd say. We do? Yeah. But once upon a time, it was just an International Day Against Homophobia. And what's a bit of a history on that? Does anyone know? I could talk to that. Um, <laughs> you better. I do know... That I believe it was a, a number of years ago that they came up with Idaho on the 17th of May. And the 17th of May was the actual day that homosexuality was taken out, delisted out of the Diagnostic Statistic Manual 4. So basically what it meant was um, in, in the past, homosexuality had been seen to be a uh, disorder, a mental disorder, and to mark that being taken out, um, people said that what we need to do is we need to do something proactive to look at the stigma, um, that this diagnosis kind of um, approach has actually you know, has, has fostered around the world, and hence Idaho was born. And I think that, that the way that it's been used in the past is that it's, you know, it's to look back at how far we've come from, to take stock about where it is that we are on that particular day or that particular year with how LGBTIQ things are going, but also to look to the future and think about the work that's yet to go. Now, in terms of Idaho to Idahobbit, I can tell you the year it happened. So this was something that there were lots of conversations about whether it should be Idahot, so homophobia and transphobia. And I still remember it was 2013 when I was doing a lot of kind of um, Idahobbit events and speeches and workshops. Um, and we decided to be as inclusive as possible with that. So certainly, certainly over the years, we know that, as I've spoken about previously, like bi, pan people, trans and gender diverse, intersex people have felt at times that they've been left out. 
particularly by gay and lesbian people. So um, I, The Hobbit, was an opportunity to say that we need to basically leverage and use our privilege of Idaho and all the attention that it gets and, and shine the light on those communities that still need a lot of light shone upon them, particularly the stigma that they face. Just before Sarah asked you a question, I think that was 1990 and it was a World Health Organisation had to make the recognition of that on the 17th of May. So I'm not going to ask you how old you were, but right up until then you had that you had it as a disease, and I think that's horrible because you know, I'm well older than you, and uh, when I shudder, uh, well I do I shudder when I think that um, for all that time that the, the well the torture of stuff that's gone on and all the, the bias and yeah. what's going on in my life through my school uh, and all that. Um, bashing and everything else. I won't use the terminologies that we use, Daniel. Yes. It, it was all that horrific stuff that uh, was sort of the norm and it was because in, internationally or worldwide it was just, oh, I don't know, I can't say anymore. I think it's... So, so, I, so I, I can certainly, like, um, one of the things that um, I was talking to Rodney Croom and so listeners might know Rodney Croom and all the activism work that he did in... Um, Tasmania to get homosexuality decriminalised and, and one of the things I said to him it was a, an offhanded statement and he kind of, he jumped he jumped on it and I said, I still remember when I was um, growing up, so I was around when homosexuality was you know, decriminalised when I was still um, yet to be a teenager but I remember having these feelings about wanting to be you know, to, to be with other boys and I still remember a very very clear memory that I thought if I was to act upon that, that police would jump through my bedroom window and that they would cut that like I would be arrested immediately and that they would somehow be able to see or know and I still had that clear I think I was 10 or 11 years of age at the time but um, to, for, for people to have a sense about what it was like that you know, for it to be not only criminalised but also that it was a mental disorder. There are still people I know that you know, we, we do live in a new uh, brave LGBTIQ world. We do have marriage equality, but I, I still know that there are LGBTIQ people who still live every single day with the ramifications about what that meant when they were growing up. Um, and sometimes sometimes the way in which they were treated by services and religious institutions and, and the police, etc. And there's still a little bit of that goes on now and uh, yeah, we've got to get rid of it. Over to you, Sarah. Over to me. Yeah, I've got to ask one thing, another thing, though. What is pansexual? Do you want to ask me? Oh, so in regards to... So pansexual, have you never heard of it before? I've heard of it, but I don't Oh, you want to make sure yeah, the, listeners to, yeah, the listeners understand. Know as well. So it's attraction regardless of gender. So whereas bisexual is usually you're attracted to a gen different genders, pansexual is regardless. So yeah. oh, okay. maybe Daniel could explain it better. <laughs> Yeah, look, look. I think I think you've done a really good job. So people are usually, when I do training sessions, they, they usually have heard about bisexual before. So if we think about gender is a binary, you've got um, people who fit into one of two boxes, male or female. Um, what we know is that that's not the case, is that people can be gender diverse. Some of the ways in which they explain it is that gender can be a, along a continuum between male and female and the gender diverse people don't fit neatly into either of those boxes and what pansexual does is it says instead of me saying I'm bisexual and I like men or women 
I say I'm pansexual. And if I say I'm pansexual, it means I can be attracted to anyone, regardless of their gender, male, female, or gender diverse, somewhere along that continuum of um, gender. Okay, gotcha. Fantastic. Tracking back a little bit, I actually wanted to ask, what was your favourite regional roadshow event? Oh, wow. That's mm. a... <laughs> hard one. Mm. That is a hard one. So, so just, you know, just for the, the listeners, working with 29 communities, events in all of those communities across the last kind of four years... There's been many of them, but I'm going to pick out one and I'll I'll explain why. What we've seen through the LGBTI Quality Roadshow here in Victoria, I encourage anyone to Google that and find out more about the work that's been done in in country towns. But there was was one particular place that I went to. I, I went there on my drive around Australia in 2010 and I went back there in 2016 to say, how have things changed for you? What is it that you would like to change? And I spoke to some people there. They did not, um, and I'm not going to name this community for various reasons, but this community, they said that they didn't have any openly LGBTIQ people in that town. There were a handful of known people who were gay and lesbian people, but they were saying that they weren't aware of any bisexual people, any trans people, any intersex people, etc. And they said that they didn't feel, they didn't have much hope for their town. After a number of months of working with them and encouraging them to do what they, they do, we had a big gathering in town in, in, in this particular community. And what we focus on, not just working with LGBTIQ people in isolation, but getting mainstream people. So police, hospitals, council, schools, etc., um, sporting clubs in the same room as LGBTIQ people. At the end of that meeting, that gathering, after a couple of months of work with that town, they announced a youth group. All the mainstream services said that they were going to support that. The police were there and saying that they would support any events going forward. They talked about the training that they were going to do through the local hospital, but also some of the initiatives that they were going to be in the school. Um, And some of the local people there, they stood up to say thank you, and they burst into tears. And they said that they they had never thought that in their lifetime, in their lifetime, and these are optimistic, educated, wondrous people who I respect so much, they said, never in my lifetime did I think that there would be this support in this community. And that community has gone on to do great things, and that can only happen when a community comes together um, and supports one another. So if I think about goosebumps and tingles up the back of my spine, um, it was that day where where that, that change was there for all to see. So people can change. That's love for your community, isn't it? It's beautiful. Yeah, and what that was about was that, you know, like so so, so often people like mayors saying horrible things in country towns and police um, not being at their best and hospitals not providing them with the, the medical, you know, kind of care and the understanding that people need to, you know, be the best with their health and well-being and just to see that, you know, it, it requires... 
you know, you know, all of those bits of towns will work together and just to see what that meant to people. So so really what it did was it showed that, that this isn't just us saying, well, we want everything to change and everything, you know, just, just for the sake of it. People in that room that day, including the police and the hospitals and the schools, they saw what it meant. And I can tell you, if, if you've actually seen that happen and seen someone, you know, literally what it means to them and how it's going to change their lives, um, there's, there's no turning back from that. You mentioned the health aspect of it, Daniel, and that's one that we cannot uh, ignore. With our program we did on World AIDS Day, uh, it was a huge response we got in terms of people listening to the podcast and it, it continues to be listened to that with the community they uh, HIV is still real and with the medication that we still find that some areas do not provide the adequate medications and that sort of thing and maybe through what's happening with COVID-19 uh, and I think Edwina's got some info on the green. Yeah, I think maybe that might change and you can get your green scripts filled at hospitals. I think they're doing it in Geelong now and I'd love to see that rolled out in Colac. And elsewhere. And elsewhere. Because there's also that stigma where people are still travelling from country areas to Melbourne because of the need for medication and that, which is adding on to continuing the stigma because it's not being provided for locally for them. I can tell you, so in Victoria, in a very very real sense, um, every single community I went to talked about access to good healthcare, GPs, access to medications and treatments, etc., was absolutely um, every single Victorian community. So we know that, again, this is an example of where things have changed, but people are still... There are, there are two reasons why people say that they travel to Melbourne or a big regional centre, um, and they'll say that one is because they can't access the services there and or they don't feel safe to basically come out or disclose or identify and actually deal with um, the practitioners up that way. Mm. So the fact that in huge parts of Victoria, people don't feel safe to be themselves and to access the services that they need worries me a lot. I'd be interested in how telehealth through COVID-19 is going to change things and whether that perhaps improves things for people. But the thing I'm most worried about is that all those people who would be normally um, travelling for trans and gender diverse treatments and options and pathways um, and or people who are getting HIV treatments, I worry that they might not be able to travel as a result of COVID-19 and they might not get the care that they need. And just the, the, the thing that I'd probably add to that, which I think is a big concern too, if we think about trans and gender diverse people, I don't want to speak for them, but speaking to some of the big trans and gender diverse advocates, it's also important to note that whilst we had lockdowns for COVID-19, one of the things that they said was they were going to, in order to make the hospital beds available and um, for COVID-19, that they said that they were going to stop all non-essential medical care. Now, we know that um, they classified trans and gender diverse treatments and pathways, medical pathways, as being non-essential. Anyone who knows trans and gender diverse people and those that work with them know that it is absolutely essential to their health and well-being. 
and there are huge ramifications if they can't access those treatments. Um, and we know that for that particular time, that trans and gender diverse pathways was being seen um, in some senses to be non-essential. So it's important for us to to go that there might be some pluses to this, but there also might be some minuses as well. Well, so, I must say I, I have learnt a lot about that, Daniel, reading about a girl by Rebecca yes. Robertson. About Rebecca her Robertson and the story of Georgie Stone, who's yes. now on Neighbours, but also doing incredible work in terms of advocating through their story to make sure that other trans and gender diverse people don't have to go through what they did. And how essential that is for someone that is trans... Uh, you know, to get their meds immediately so they don't start growing if they're if they are. Um, oh, I'm going to say this wrong. You have to cut this bit out. But if the, if they are transitioning to female, they don't want to grow an Adam's apple. They need yes, their drugs. You know, that was astounding. Reading that, I thought everyone needs to be who they are. So certainly, certainly what they'll say is for trans and gender diverse young people uh, or even children is that they have access to those, like you're talking about, the puberty blockers. Yes. So what that does is that buys them time to be able to get the support to make the, the best decisions over time with you know, what it is that they want what decisions they want to make about their body and all the advocates will will tell us that it's a battle because the medical professions will spend a lot of time where they'll say you need to convince us why this is important whereas what the, the advocates are saying if you look at the trans and gender diverse people who have the best health and well-being are the, are the trans and gender diverse people who can make the decisions about their body when what they need and when they need it and that they're the best people we know this about us like i know this about myself i'm i'm cisgender but when i'm able to make decisions about my own what it is that i need for my own body my life is better if someone says you can't do a b or c that's generally not great for my health I mean, there's huge ramifications for who, who and what they are over time, and you gave an example of that, Edwina. As you mentioned a lot earlier on, Daniel, we've still got a lot to learn and there's a lot more work to go on. We need to have a little break here on OCR FM 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast where we are talking with Daniel Whithouse. And uh, we've got Sarah in here from Paddocks for Pride, and this program will be on again on Sunday, this next Sunday at 6 o'clock. Yeah, which is actually Ida Hobbit Day. So. Ida Hobbit. <laughs> and Edwina, we're going to have a break, and we're finally going to put on, we're not finally, we're going to be putting on your Kermit the Frog track now, Daniel. And uh, I hope everyone just has a little break, and you can get yourself a cuppa now, Daniel, because I know you enjoy one. Will. <laughs> All right, so get yourself a cuppa and I'll just put on this track and we'll uh, we'll be back with you shortly here on OCRFM on Community Connect. Welcome back to Community Connect with Edwina and Greg McHenry where we've also got our lovely Sarah in the studio here who's from Rainbows, what is it called? What's from Paddocks to Pride. Paddocks to Pride. She's a rainbow person herself <laughs> and she's from Paddocks to Pride here on OCRFM 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast. And we've also still got Daniel Whithouse there. Have you got your cuppa going there, Daniel? I certainly do. It's, uh, it's, it's getting low, but it's, uh, it's going to last me for the rest of this interview. Good idea. Now, you were just, what did you think? You had your Kermit the Frog now. Does that make you happy? That was Kermit and, and uh, Rainbow Connection. That's where I got muddled up on the way through. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> I, I, I particularly like it because um, my mum is a frog fan, but also she's a, she's a huge 
Kermit fan and to hear that so many times as I was driving for 38 weeks around Australia and I was a long way from home and missed people and it was lovely to remember my mum every time I heard Kermit on the banjo on the log. Oh, gee. Gorgeous. <laughs> All right, now with Sarah, you were going to put it on your program. Why were you going to pick it out? Did you know about this with Daniel? Oh, no, this is before I met Daniel. This was um, when Jonathan and I were initially brainstorming. So this is before I even... I'm not even sure if the studio knew about the radio show that I was putting together at this stage. This was when I was just meeting up with Jonathan and putting out ideas and everything. And yeah, and then we ended up approaching the station. Well, obviously, because Jonathan's a part of the station. And then making a Facebook page and everything and just put it as a pride show coming out of the closet soon. <laughs> That's a great thing for Cola. Eh? Yeah. Really is. And then um, we had a lot of people come up with ideas and, yeah, then someone commented and said, what about From Paddocks to Pride? And I'm like, That's the one. That's it. That's Love it. Love well, it. It's, so, it's such a good name too. Yeah. Now, your mum, how did that go when you came out, Daniel? And were you quite forward about it in the, your time? Look, I told my mum, the first thing she said was she didn't believe it because she, she had particular ideas about how gay people were. Now, I was only talking about this last night with a friend. I said, when I came out, my mum said, you can't be gay. And I said, mum, when I was 11 and 12, we watched Beaches together and I was in tears and being more dramatic about the death and the end. Like it was a, a dramatic movie at the time for people yeah. who haven't seen it and kind of something that gay men gravitated towards. But first of all, when mum finally realised that I was being serious and I was being gay, she said, I've got absolutely no problems with you being gay. I've just got two concerns. And I asked her what those concerns were. Now, remembering these were the 1990s yeah. um, when I came out to her in 1994. And she said, the first is I'm really worried about HIV AIDS. And I said to her, well, you know, you know that I'm a, a, you know, and I am pretty common sense and level-headed. And I said, look, I'll do my best, but, you know, like I'll, I'll practice safer sex and I'll do my best and we'll see how that goes. And she said, okay, well, as long as I know that you're doing, you know, doing what you can. And then the second thing she said is, you know, you have an older brother and sister and I see how they live their lives with their partners and I don't want you to have a tougher life than them. Mm. You know, I want you to be able to have a relationship and I want you to feel safe but I'm worried that you're going to live less of a life because who you are and again I said to her look I'm common sense I can't give you any guarantees but what you need to know is I'm going to do my best and I'm going to work hard and, and hopefully that counts for something so I was so lucky because um, yeah, my dad wasn't supportive I know that, that other people are completely rejected by their family but I must admit it, it meant so much to me that I knew that my mum loved me and I knew that she was going to support me through it and I, I still remember the first time that I knew that I mean again this is the mid-1990s the first time I knew that my mum was okay because I think you know a lot of the LGBTIQ people kind of get suspicious about how supportive people are and I still remember I brought my first boyfriend home and when I brought him home to my mum she treated him the same as she would my sister's boyfriend or my brother's girlfriend. And from that moment on, I relaxed because I just said she's treating him, yes, yeah, treating my boyfriend the same as my sibling's partners. I reckon I'm going to be okay. Is that one of the reasons why you got involved? Because I understand you did get involved with the Kids Helpline. 
the reason why I got involved with Kids Helpline was um, not only because of the service that they are, but really I was doing a lot of work at that stage. So, so as a result of my work with GASP, I started working in the local Geelong schools to challenge homophobia and developed up a program called Pride and Prejudice. Deakin University, back in 2001, did a research evaluation and what they showed was that the program that I'd actually developed up working um, you know, in the various local Geelong schools actually significantly shifted students' attitudes towards gay men and lesbians in a positive way. So because of all the work that I've been doing in schools and all of the work I've been doing in training teachers, Kids Helpline said, we think that you could be valuable to us and we could work together. And so my role at Kids Helpline was basically to train up lots of teachers and health professionals to work with young people. What we recognise and what Kids Helpline knows right now is that most young people, if they have an issue, if they have a problem, whether or not it's LGBTIQ related or not, most young people will go to their friends first if they've got a problem. And so what Kids Helpline were trying to do was rather than have all of these kids hearing their friends' problems and not knowing what to do about it, because the research was showing that, they said that instead what we want is we want to encourage those friends. If I was to hear from my friend that they're going through something, I'd go, you know, gee, that's really tough. Here are my thoughts on it. But what I really think you should do is talk to someone else about it. And if you don't have anyone else to talk about it, how about you talk with Kids Helpline? And we know that they, they certainly were getting plenty of calls. And you know, I understand they still do with an LGBTIQ lens over it. And it's important that, you know, when people reach out, that they have somewhere to land, and Kids Helpline is one of those places. Well, there are a few of them that we'll be putting up on our podcast blog, and, um, and Q Life is another one, or Switchboard. I can't encourage people enough to call Switchboard. So Victoria's long-standing LGBTIQ uh, telephone counselling service. They also do web counselling. They also do a whole bunch of other community projects. Um, but certainly anyone, anyone listening to this program now who has an LGBTIQ question, a concern if they're LGBTIQ themselves, if they're not LGBTIQ, we encourage people to call Switchboard even if they just want to have a chat or a question because Certainly, I like to think of this as stepping stones. So Switchboard might not necessarily have every single answer or know every single service, but they are the best first step. So usually what happens is that you kind of go to Switchboard and they'll be like a pathway into so many things in the LGBTIQ community. I know that certainly they were involved with the LGBTI Quality Roadshow and the work that we do in 29, you know, 29 communities across Victoria because they recognise that as a statewide service, you can't do enough promotion in every nook and cranny of our great state. Yeah, I really like Switchboard in the sense that so anyone can access it. So if parents have a question or anything, but I love it in the sense that I have a lot of queer friends that don't like calling. So if you do want to call, the number's 1800 184 527, but you do have the option to chat online. So if you go to www.switchboard.org.au, you can use a chat so there's actually a web chat that you can use because i know a lot of people don't like calling i personally prefer to talk to people over the phone but i guess 
it, it makes it harder. So Have they got I'm an f- online event as well for Idaho? Ida Hobbit. Ida, sorry, Ida Hobbit. God, that's showing mode again, isn't it? Just, old habits die. Yes, yes, they do. Did Daniel want to talk about that, or would you like me to? <laughs> what about Greg's? Um, uh, so staying well together is something a switchboard is doing, and I think it's it's an online gathering, an online event that they're doing, just recognising that people want to be together and and certainly I think everyone who's been a part of COVID-19 has been getting into meetings and gatherings that are on phone calls or online. So certainly I would encourage everybody to look at Switchboard social media. So Switchboard Victoria is where you would search through Facebook or Twitter or um, also Instagram. But also if you chuck into Google Switchboard Victoria, you should be able to get details of that event. The other thing is, is that, you know, keeping in mind that there are lots of things that are going online. Um, Usually there is the annual candlelight vigil that Living Positive Victoria and Thorn Harbour Health would do. So recognising HIV AIDS and people who have lost along the way over so many years, over a generation, and they're doing their candlelight vigil online as well. So if you look up Living Positive Victoria candlelight vigil, you will find that through on their social, etc. as well. Yeah, I'm also going to post up the Staying Well Together. I'll post that up on From Paddocks to Pride's Facebook page because, yeah, it does look like a really good event. It's fabulous. But it's on the Friday instead of the Sunday, so... The other thing I'll say too is that if you look online and they're coming up more and more on, on social media, but if we're thinking of Western Victoria and certainly growing up at, you know, as a Geelong person, um, I certainly had family and friends and life that, that happened across Western Victoria. The Wimmera Pride Project, so they're based up in and around Horsham, oh, yeah. up in the Wimmera, obviously. The Wimmera Pride Project are doing a watch party. So for those who aren't aware, you can actually log in and you can actually watch a movie together. So we used to have a popcorn night. We used to all sit around in beanbags and on couches and on floors and watch in the same room. You can actually now do a watch party where basically you jump in and you're actually watching. And they're, as I understand, they're going to be watching the movie Pride. Um, I love that movie. This weekend. So you can log into that anywhere. You don't have to just be a part of the Wimmera. I know that people across regional and rural Victoria, LGBTIQ people and their supporters and allies are jumping in as well on that. So if you've never been to a watch party, why not try this as your first? And what's even better is it literally, it starts right after From Paddocks to Pride finishes. So you can listen to the episode live and then watch the movie. And what's the name of the film? Pride. Pride, okay. Was it? We'll have to see yes. if we can get it. Now, another one we want to make mention of, a friend of ours who you know well too, I believe, Daniel, is uh, involved with the Drummond Street services because of Merrin and, and Jacks. Yes. That's another one we should make mention of too, I believe, isn't it? So certainly if you go to Drummond Street, I know that they are doing so many events throughout the year. So if um, not just because of either Hobbit, please get onto their social media, Google them and get involved with their LGBTIQ goodness. Well, I don't know where we go from here. Have you got any more questions? You did have a couple more, haven't you, Sarah? You're always going to come up with another question as soon as we finish. <laughs> I was just going to ask, what's your favourite Pride event? Oh, of course it was the one down here in Geelong, but there's going to be the one in Colac shortly, isn't there? When are you going to organise one in Colac? 
That's pressure. Yeah, pressure. <laughs> we should jump for one. Sarah, you better answer the question, Daniel. I just jumped in, putting the pressure on Sarah. So I'm going to start off with two, and I'm going to. So the first I'm going to say is is that it was really really special for me to come down to Geelong Rainbow Festival this year. The reason being is that Johnson's Park used to be a place I used to be scared of. I said earlier in the interview how a gay man was murdered there, and so I certainly felt um, scared in the 1990s to be there. One of the things that really just made my year, made my 2020, was being in Johnson's Park and seeing it transformed and seeing all the work of so many LGBTIQ people and how basically we painted Johnson's Park rain and that was just incredibly special for me so so that would be the first thing I'd say but I'm actually going to say for those people who've had a chance to go Midsummer Carnival Day so the reason why I like Midsummer Carnival is is whether or not I like to kind of walk around stalls and see a concert or whatever it is what matters to me is that every single year Midsummer Carnival Day gets bigger and bigger. And a lot's been said about how we used to have gay bars, we don't have as many, where are the places that we gather as LGBTIQ people? Um, People just spending all their time on their couch and their phones, um, especially now, but they were saying that before COVID-19. And people were getting really, really cynical about whether or not there was something of a, a sense of an LGBTIQ community. One of the things about Midsummer Carnival Day, as I said, is that it gets bigger and bigger every year. And just to see so many people who want to, have to be in that park, to be in that space, to be with their tribes, just makes me feel good. It makes me feel good that even in these kind of times where people can argue whether or not we're we're more or less connected, that people uh, still want to gather with their tribes um, in a safe space to be ourselves. And that's always going to be special to me because um, I know that in the 1990s, I really didn't have that opportunity. So um, hopefully we come up with lots of ideas how we can keep that happening. As far as the tribes go, there were a lot of, well, Edwina and I were not the only heterosexuals there. There were also a lot of supporters and there is far more of the general public were there than I've seen before as well. And I think the more we can get the support and the more we have just a, you know, just a mixture of community, the better. And uh, so we, so, so Sarah's so smiling at me across the table. And I know she's gay, so I hope she's not going to race over and give me a kiss. <laughs> no, I just... It's true, though, isn't it? There's a lot of... There was a real mix of people there. It was fabulous. Yeah, no, there was. And yeah. the more, the better. Yeah, the more, the better. More, so the more, the merrier. So, so we know that we're better together. We mm-hmm. do do better together. But here's an observation I want to put out there to everybody, is that in the communities and the places that I go where you have exclusive events, so LGBTIQ only or gay only or trans and gender diverse only or whatever that is, that that they're important spaces for safety reasons. But if they stay that way, those are places that don't last long. Okay, Mm. so there are their groups that peter out, they don't have as many people. The initiatives, the groups, the events, the spaces that say we are inclusive We want to make it LGBTIQ focused. We want to make it LGBTIQ safe and supportive. 
those are the places that I see in any community where that's the case, I see them growing. Mm-hmm. And Geelong Rainbow Festival was a perfect example of that. Midsummer Carnival is a perfect example. Minus 18 have been a really good example of that. But I've seen this in every nook and cranny. It's not just in the big smoke. So that's something for us to say that the more that we welcome our heterosexual cisgender allies and supporters making sure that they still maintain safety for LGBTIQ people. And if they can do that, I can guarantee you'll have more and more people year on year than if you keep it exclusive. Next step for Daniel, what's what's on the agenda for you, Daniel? Um, so there is the wrapping up. So Nish has been working with the Victorian government for the last four years on this LGBTI Quality Roadshow. We've worked with um, thousands and thousands of people across Victoria. We've had hundreds of events. We have uh, lots of great stories, but we've also got lots of learnings about what's not working and how we can create change in, in regional and rural Victoria. It's my job in the next 12 months to work on what that means and, and how we're going to reflect that back to communities, how we're going to work with communities on that. Apart from that, it's not just Victoria for me. So there are bits of work that are happening in Tasmania at the moment. Um, there are bits of work that are happening in Queensland. And there's some thought about in the non-east coast as well. So what my charity is trying to do is at all stages is to get LGBTIQ people into the same room as mainstream folk. When I say mainstream, that's healthcare providers, that's local government, that's police, that's schools, that's community centres, um, because we know, as I've said before, together we do better and that we can have transformations in communities. So that work for me is not going to stop outside of Victoria. It's not going to be limited to Victoria, and I want to do much, much more of that work. Well, all I can do is sort of say that my observations over the years I've known you and what's changed since we started promoting Idaho, Idahobbit on radio here and uh, elsewhere that uh, all the changes are being positive, but there's still more to go, Daniel, and I'd love to thank you for being part of it today, and also you, Sarah. It's been fabulous. You got any last words you'd love to say other than a virtual hug to everyone? Yeah, a virtual hug would be great. I haven't really done much. I just bought your the equipment. That's it's it. It's been fabulous. <laughs> um, before we do go, though, just with the, the way things are with the COVID-19, we need to let just people know with uh, if you've got fever, coughing, sore throat, fatigue, shortness of breath or anything like that in Colac, there is the uh, COVID-19 clinic for initial advice and consultation and you can get that. You don't go in, you just ring up and wait out and or wait outside in Connor Street. The phone number there is 52325402 and I'll be putting up the, the people we've mentioned, Kids Line, Q Life, Drummond Street and a few others I'll be putting up there on the blog for support for people who need support, family and whatever. And hopefully there'll be um, lots of dads out there who automatically accept their child rather than, or like their mums, when they realise there's nothing wrong with them, they can still love them whether they're gay or whatever. Yeah, hug your children and listen to them and love love and support. So, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel, for being with us. It's been Daniel Whithouse, who is a great advocate, and uh, look, I look forward to giving you a hug at the next next Pride, whatever, Daniel. Uh, me too. Bear hugs to everyone. Stay mm-hmm. safe. And if, uh, if in doubt that you, you don't think something can happen in your country town, go to niche.org.au and let's have a, a cuppa either in real life or virtual. Good on you. Beautiful. We're going to go out with that track by, what's it, James Rain, and what's it called? 
yes, you've got James Rain and Blundell as well. It's called Way Out West, and um, that's certainly where I went when I was driving around Australia. All right, well, that's a track we're going to go out with. Look, thanks once again, and thank you, Edwina and, and Sarah. And we will be able to talk with you again next week here on 98.3 and 88.7 FM along the coast, where we've been streaming live at all the W's, ocrfm.org.au. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this OCRFM podcast. Head to ocrfm.org.au to find more great content and information about how to donate and support this community radio station.